Give me Scotland or I die. John Knox. Founder of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, John Knox was a pastor, writer, and Reformed theologian who led the way for the Reformation in 16th century Scotland. But it wasn't easy. His life would be one full of exile, prison, and other trials. Educated at the University of St. Andrews, Knox became deeply involved in the movement to reform the Scottish Church. Rising to great authority in the Church of England, he was pivotal in reforming the text of the Book of Common Prayer within the Church of England. But when Mary I, Bloody Mary, ascended to the throne of England and promptly reestablished the Catholic faith in the land, Knox was compelled to resign from his position of leadership and even flee the country. For a time, he lived in Geneva, where he learned more about the Reformed theology and Presbyterian polity of John Calvin. Out of this experience in Calvin's Geneva, Knox would go on to write the liturgical forms ultimately adopted by the Reformed Church in Scotland. From Geneva, Knox moved through Frankfurt, but ultimately couldn't resist the pull of his beloved Scotland, to which he ultimately returned, though his return was not entirely peaceful. The Protestant Reformation he led in Scotland was seen as revolutionary, and Knox was certainly not a winsome nuancer. One of his publications, An Attack on the Rule of Women in the Civil Sphere, was entitled The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Yeah, not exactly a page out of how to win friends and influence people. Out of his conflict with what Knox saw as wicked and tyrannical rule, he compared living under Mary's reign to Paul's living under Nero, came some of the sharpest work on proper resistance to tyrannical civil rule to come out of this period. Though many view Knox as a kind of brash firebrand, it was ultimately his love for the Scottish people which led him to his passionate defense of the people from rulers who abused and lorded it over their subjects. He was tenacious in his opposition to anything which would harm his Scottish brethren. Upon his death, James Douglas, 4th Earl of Morton and newly elected Regent of Scotland, is said to have pronounced over John's grave, Here lies one who never feared any flesh. John knew what it was to love his people, to love his place. A man of passionate prayer, Bloody Mary reportedly said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. She knew that this man of God was praying down her wicked throne and doing so not out of blind hatred of his foes, but for the love of the Scottish people. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Well, welcome back, everyone, to the King's Hall Podcast. I'm Brian Sauvet, joined as usual by a pair of troublemakers. Dan, Eric, tell the people hi. Hello. Hello, Dan. Hello, Brian. I can't believe I've been accused of being a troublemaker, though. Accused? Uh, The evidence is in, Dan. Sorry. What I meant is that Eric was a troublemaker and that you were very nuanced. You were a winsome nuance, bro. <laughs> That's an insult, by the way. Wait, actually. I, I picked up on that. Go back Thank to you. the, I'll go back. You're a troublemaker too. Well, welcome back here. We are in part two, actually, of our uh, little mini series here in the, the middle of episode, or sorry, of season one, uh, talking about godly city fathers. We're talking about Christian political governance. We're talking about a vision for a Christian political theology, which seems important, right? In some of the previous episodes, we talked about what it would look like to wrest back a truly political 
and Christian life from all of the nonsense that is going on here. We've talked about some of the things that won't do the trick in reclaiming the land, things like cuckold conservatism, Christless conservatism. We need something deeper than that. And so in last episode, we started part one here on Christian political theory, and we gave 12 theses on Christian rule. Uh, We got through the first four of them before we realized that since this was an outline that I, Brian Sauvé, wrote, it was going to take six to ten episodes to get through. Your thoughts, gentlemen? It kind of reminds me of, uh, there was a joke a few years back, and they said, uh, yeah, we found a a new napkin that Tolkien had written on, and it was another of the stories from Lord of the Rings. And they said, Peter Jackson will be making a 15-part miniseries (laughs) from from the remnants of the napkin. That's sort of what your outline is, Brian. Yeah. So it's a comparison to Tolkien. So thank you, Eric. Actually, I'm very flattered. You yeah, know exactly. You should be one of my least favorite sins when it comes to communicating is loquacity, verbosity, hydrocoptic marzal veins, so fitted to the ambifacient lunar wane shaft. Using too many words when a few would suffice. Going on and on and on in a rambling, um, unnecessarily. Lengthy, prefamulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing. Discourse and diatribe upon subjects which could have been handled in short manner. I feel like you're describing Dan's method of communication. Yeah, that's I. I Except I'm opposite. I'm glad you picked up on that. <laughs> Dan's face. <laughs> like when in this episode in the intro, and I said, "Say hi to the listeners," and Dan said, "Hi." Yeah, that's a <laughs> verbosity. I think is a good word. For yeah. It. Yeah. Oh. I, the thing is, is I try to get a word in every once in a while, but you two, both of you. Man, a living. It's yeah. not me. It's Brian. Yeah, it's, definitely it's not you, Eric. It's me. So in this episode, <laughs> to get us back on track here, because you know we do have some material to get through. Again, I did write the outline. We're going to continue in our look at these 12 theses on Christian rule, and we'll be picking up at number five. Let me just read them all for you again to refresh your memory, and then we'll pick back up at number five. So the first thesis is that the political realm is one ordained by God. And therefore, civil rule, though often corrupted by man's sin into an evil, is a positive good. Number two, it is impossible to get a godly civil government out of a godless people. Number three, godly city fathers are to rule with respect to God's objective standards, not man's subjective inclinations. Number four, godly city fathers are to be just that, fathers, not mothers. And then all the feminists jumped off the train, and we continued. We are feminists. They haven't been on the train. They've been run over. They've been gone for a while. Let's be honest. So number five, and this is where we get into new territory for this episode. We're saying because we love our neighbors, we ought to desire Christians and not pagans to rule over them. Number six, godly city fathers know that their authority is not an unlimited authority. Number seven, godly city fathers must love their place and their people. Number eight. Godly city fathers rule with explicit awareness of the covenantal nature of their office. Number nine, godly city fathers are to be defenders of the Christian cultus. Number 10, godly city fathers are to uphold the principles of localism and subsidiarity. Number 11, Christians should live truly political lives as the Greeks defined it, meaning a life enmeshed in the affairs of the polis in a way that contributes to the good of his neighbor rather than lives of barbarism. And then finally, number 12, godly city fathers are to know what is in their sphere of authority and possibly even more importantly, what is not. It's a beautiful list. That's 12. You read them all. I was just out of breath from reading them all. That's why I paused. So we're picking up 
today, gentlemen, in number five, where we said that because we love our neighbors, we we should want Christians to be the ones ruling over them, not pagans. Why do we need to say this? What do you think? I mean, I wrote that thesis. Do you agree with it, I suppose? What do you think the listeners need to know there? Yeah, I absolutely agree with it. I think one of the reasons it needs to be stated is because we have so many... Uh, as I think I mentioned last time, Gashmu saith that we have so many people within the quote-unquote Christian camp, uh, the David Frenches of the world, who are trying to discourage Christians and Christian rebuilding of Christendom, civil yeah. government, etc. So you have people like David French saying that LGBT story time at the library is a gift of freedom. Wow. And um, we would just say, no, you're being utterly insane. It's not a gift of freedom to be <laughs> promoting death. And so really, we do actually, I think this is true with a lot of these, Brian, that you have to state what is plain and obvious. Yeah. Um, we, we can't tell who's a man and who's a woman. And so the, the real question is, we're saying that Christians would rule better than non-Christians. Yeah. That's the basic claim. Yes. I can think of a, a number of places, Dan, in Proverbs where that would be true, but why do you think it's true that Christians make better rulers than wicked men? Well, it kind of goes back to Thesis 3 that said— Godly city fathers are to rule with respect to God's objective standards, not mm. man's subjective inclinations. And if you have pagans ruling over people, then what standard do they have by which to rule? Well, it's going to be something other than God's objective standard, according to his law. Mm. Which gets back to the, the first portion of our thesis here, because we love our neighbors. And the love of neighbor being one of the pillars of the law. Yeah, way of summing up the whole law. Yeah, the way of summing up the whole law is outlined throughout the revealed character of God through his law throughout the scriptures. And and so just rule by Christians according to the objective standard of God should cause human flourishing. It should cause joy. Uh, like we had said in the last episode, like a fr- freshly mown field with that had just rained or whatever the beautiful that I'm butchering. Yeah. No, you're right. The the, it's like the dew that comes down and yeah. cools the grass. Yeah, yeah, Proverbs exactly. 29.2, Dan says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Yeah, and if you've been paying attention at all to our cold opens, you would have a good picture of what these absolutely pagan nations will do to their people, especially in regards to love of neighbor the Aztecs, Mao's China, places like that. We could find example after example after example of pagan nations and how how they break the law of loving neighbor as themselves. Yeah. Essentially to the point of massacring their own people in order to attain their means. Or even in our current situation, dare I say, with everybody's budgets getting quite a bit tighter because of inflation, which is theft due to radical spending and overreach from the yeah. government, not loving their neighbor because people are hurting. There was just a study that came out uh, that revealed that people have less money in their bank account now than they did last year. And it was by a substantial margin. I don't remember the numbers, so yeah. I'm not going to say, but it was shocking yeah. how l- much less money people had in their bank accounts than they did last year. Uh, the the uh, third and fourth month, uh, March and April this year, I believe were the, two highest months on record in credit card spending. Oh, wow. And so you're starting to see, and this is uh, 2022, year of our Lord, uh, how the effects of pagan leaders, pagan rulers, 
who do not love their neighbor, who mm-hmm. do not have an objective standard, by doing something simple, as simple, and quite honestly, it seems innocent in a way because we've become used to inflationary spending of two or three percent a year. Yeah. To now, people can't buy food. Yeah. And you're going to see issues with housing and with continuing with energy costs. All of that, all of that rambling rant to say, well, yeah, go ahead. That pagans, when they rule, do not cause a love of neighbor. For the project of this season to be successful, the project of seeing a new Christendom built, there will need to be thousands and thousands of Christian men and women who are equipped to stand for the truth of Scripture against the errors of both the liberal church and the pagan culture. This is one reason we're so glad to be partnering with our sponsor for this season, Reformation Heritage Books. Reformation Heritage Books offers a large selection of helpful and theologically rigorous resources on everything from biblical theology to history to blue-collar family discipleship, the type of library and resources that could make the kind of men and women I just described grounded in the rich heritage of the Reformed faith. We'd like to highlight one resource in particular, their Family Worship Bible Guide, that presents rich devotional thoughts on all 1,189 chapters of the Bible, including searching questions to promote conversation and to help you in leading your family in such a way as to say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Tap the link in the description of this episode to pick one up today. They don't cause human flourishing. They do not cause human flourishing because the cost, the cost will be then, is that fewer children will be born. Yeah. That... There will be an increase in poverty and in yeah. overall quality of life in the and glor- in human flourishing. I think the Proverbs say the glory of a king is his people, is the people too. So when you talk about dwindling populations or populations that are being conquered through immigration and things like that, you end up basically bringing a new culture and essentially colonizing a land through hostile immigration, which you see in places like Europe with Muslim immigration, all of these things essentially undermine one of the key arguments I think I hear the most when people are, uh, Christians are promoting Christian political disengagement is, well, we're supposed to just worry about loving our neighbors, quit being so politically active, quit being so politically abrasive, quit being so politically um, partisan, just focus on loving your neighbor. And we're actually saying, because we love our neighbors, we want them to be on the on the the best side maybe ruled by a wise godly christian and on the second tier if we can't get that at least ruled by the least foolish person running for office really is a love of neighbor issue yeah it really is and it's interesting in the last couple of years cuz you've heard love of neighbor a lot but you haven't heard it clearly defined right right so we would say well you have to define god the way god does according yeah. to his law and I think the other the other point to be made here as we as we seek to love our neighbors, it's something that we'll get into later. But does the government run by pagans, which a large central state, just you know, Dan, you're 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 saying pretty much the same thing. But does it have a good track record? Yeah, like has it been doing a good job just in the last two years? And what does the what does the the government do for the most part yeah. when it's run by pagans? There's inflationary theft. They're shutting down small businesses. There's killing livelihoods. Yep. There's forcing you know, experimental things in people's bodies, et cetera. Yeah. Steal, Again, kill, we, and destroy. We, we could actually just point to Scripture and say that is not love to neighbor. That's right. Uh, to be doing that. So I have a question for you guys. 
What do you think about this quote that is often attributed to Martin Luther? It's actually not something Luther said, but the apocryphal Luther said, quote, I'd rather be ruled by a wise Turk than by a foolish Christian. Your thoughts? This was, uh, who said it? Supposedly Martin Luther, but it wasn't really Luther. It was someone else. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it depends. Like, the assumption is that the Turk is going to be wise. Yeah. I mean, just look at, you know, say Muslim today. Yeah. Would I want to be ruled by a quote-unquote wise Muslim? Well, does that mean we're living in Sharia law? Is that really wisdom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My answer would be no. Right. There's And there's a few pe- there's a there's a kind of, um, it's such a lo- it's such a short sentence, but it's so loaded. What is yeah. wisdom? It sounds like something David French would say, actually. Uh, <laughs> I think Denny Burke claimed it was one of his favorite Luther quotes. That uh, makes sense. <laughs> and then, and then he found out that it wasn't. Uh, so, and 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 Burke wrote an article about this when Mitt Romney was running for president about why it was permissible to vote for a Mormon. Um, and then everything changed with Orange Man. Exactly. All of a sudden, we're like, no, no, no. Give he us must the- be qualified to be a Christian pastor. Oh, boy. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I guess, I mean, would you say that Joe Biden is a foolish Christian? He's a foolish pagan. Yeah, I think he's even worse. I think he's a false professor who ought to be put under church discipline. Yeah. I, I guess, I don't know. That's what I'm going to say. It seems like, why would I have, why do I, why, why are elections always the worst <laughs> Between options. two bad choices. It's like, come on. That's the yeah. best we have. And Dan, that's is a wise Turk or a foolish Christian. Right. Come think, on. That's exactly actually the point I think is important to see with these kind of quotes. Because you get these quotes all the time. Is that it's like in Proverbs when Solomon says that it would be better to have a dinner of herbs with peace in your home than a rich feast with strife. With strife. Contention, yeah. Right. So, But what Solomon is not saying is that feasts are bad. Best of all would be a peaceful home and a feast. And that's what people, I think, neglect in these kind of quotes is it like, well, sure, there's a few issues. Like, number one, if he was a wise Turk, it would mean that he was a bad Turk. Like, And I think Luther's talking about Muslims here. But if yes. he if he was a wise Muslim, he would be a – and we measured him as a wise Muslim. It would mean that he was a bad Muslim because he didn't actually believe the, the principles of Islamic ethics. Yeah. You know, so that's an issue there. But I would say, best of all, why can't we actually go one step further and say, well, actually, best of all would be to be ruled by a wise Christian. Like so often, this is just people trying to justify saying, let's just be ruled by by Muslims and pagans. You know, as long as they're kind of close to a few biblical principles. Well, no, like it's the same thing when Mitt Romney ran for president. Mm-hmm. It, similar, similar sort of thing, even though he's well, anyway. Well, I, I, I think <laughs> never mind. We won't go down he, that. The last the two episodes ago, we talked about cuckold conservatism. Yeah, yeah he's there. Like, you go. It's I, a- I think one of the things it brings up though in this discussion, especially political. Anytime we're talking politics today, and we're connecting it in, in any way to Christian religion, you've got to be on guard for the fact that there are people who do not give a rip about Christ, but they're going to use passages of Scripture out of context mm-hmm. to bludgeon people to do things they want. So yep. when you know our friends at the CDC were meeting with pastors in America, they were in trying to push the vax. They were telling them, "Hey, one thing we can do is just tell them it's love to neighbor. Yeah, love to neighbor. Take a lot of selfies with little Hobbit masks on your face, and uh, <laughs> literally, like they were yeah. giving them instruction on that. Rick Warren was one of the big dogs in that conversation. So they were actually training pastors. the The state, the humanist state, God hating state, was training pastors how to take scripture and manipulate their people with it. And our response to that should actually be, 
oh, you actually think scripture is an authority. Well, let's go ahead and talk about scripture then. Yeah, let's go back to Lex Rex and Samuel yeah. Rutherford. Instead of you saying to me, hey, Christian, follow your rules. I'll say, oh, you think the state should follow Christian rules? I've yeah. got a few of them for you. Let's stop killing babies. Let's stop allowing sodomy. Let's stop allowing public blasphemy. Like, let's go down. Let's go down the rule. The, the down the list then, and, and say if you want me to play by these rules, that's fine. But guess what? You're you're actually obligated to play by these rules too. Yeah, and it goes back to something, Brian, that we've been talking about. Like, we're all going to be every people is a worshiping people. What binds us together is a religion. So religion means to bind. Yeah. So every people is bound together by some religion. The question is which one. Right, every people has a law. The question is, which one? Yeah. So we're saying that God's laws are just, equitable. They bring about human flourishing, and so we ought to uh, promote those. And you really only have one choice. Mm-hmm. Secular humanism has has bred death. We we see that with abortion. Yeah. We see it in the last two years. Yeah, it's obvious. So it's good, and and I think one way that we could apply this fifth thesis. Because what immediately comes to mind for most people today, in our current American context at least, where we're dominated by national politics and presidential mm-hmm. elections, is to think, yeah, we want a Christian president. And you're like, absolutely, I do. I 100% do. I long for a wise Christian president. However, the much more immediate application for us, and I think you guys would agree, is so Christians go and conquer Go and conquer school boards. Go and conquer local government. Go and go and take some fees, some some actually strategic and winnable ground. Because the reality is, we've never, in a sense, there 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 are some senses in which we've never been a more politically disengaged people. Well, this is actually one of the. I, I may have mentioned this in the last show. Samuel Francis, beautiful losers, wrote an essay, I think, for Chronicles in the early nineties. One of the things he mentions in there is that he's. This is back then. That conservatives are obsessed with presidential elections, mm-hmm. but they really don't get engaged in anything grassroots outside of that. Yeah. And that's the key failure here. Right. When you look at Knox and the way that Presbyterianism was built up in Scotland, the beauty of it was it was, you know, I think, Dan, you mentioned this. The beauty of it was ground up. Mm-hmm. Right. It wasn't that power came from the top down. It was that we established things from the bottom up, strong households, mm-hmm. strong fathers. And so as we look at the country, the lazy work is to say, well, let's just worry about who the next president is going to be. Yeah. That man in today's world actually has very little power. But the hard work, the thing that we really have to be doing is, hey, in our church, how do we, how do we help grow strong fathers, yeah. strong households? And then those fathers, how do we help them start businesses so that they have gravitas in their community and they have octoritas? They have an authority to speak to their mm. fellow men. That's where polis and true politics comes from. Yeah. So we've got to start there. And I think you've got to recognize, too, that's going to be the long game. But, yeah, yeah, absolutely, we've got to get involved in every single sphere, every level of our local place first. That's right. Moving on to number six, if I have your permission, gentlemen. Proceed. Proceed. Okay, excellent. We're also saying that godly city fathers know that their authority is not an unlimited authority. Right? That it's essential, if if you're going to establish or develop a Christian political theory or a Christian political theology, one of the bedrock uh, most obvious statements that you have to get behind and things you have to understand in terms of principles is that, number one, there is no authority that is beneath the authority of God that is truly unlimited. Only God's authority is unlimited. 
And though God does establish real authorities in fathers and in pastors and in city fathers, none of those authorities have unlimited authority. And so, you know, I think, I think guys, there's, there's some, again, this is such an obvious one that you would think almost like it doesn't even need to be included, but the last 24 months. Well, it's weird though on this one, because if you talk to the modern American statist shill, the sheeple yeah. of, of today, they'll be like, yeah, the government has unlimited authority. Mm-hmm. Okay. You read Romans 13 and you go, well, I conclude therefore that the government can do whatever it wants and you have to obey. Yeah. What's interesting is they don't apply that to the authority of husbands over wives. Any other sphere. They don't apply it hardly anywhere. Right. You know, we, we live in a society where children do not obey parents, nor do they have to. They're encouraged not to by the state. Yep. Um, certainly, women are not encouraged to obey husbands, as Paul yes. commands mm-hmm. in Ephesians 5. They just want to, again, this is the beat stick of a large job of the state. That's what this is. Yeah, it shows that what we're, you're operating in is a, a statist deified state paradigm because who has unlimited authority god does well whoever you're saying render unlimited authority to that's who you're saying is god yeah and part of god's hierarchical structure is that he has limitations and he has boundaries and those are for our good i think it was robert frost who said you know fences make good neighbors Mm. you know the point is dan like if we live next to each other a fence helps us establish clearly what is dan's responsibility and what is mine and so that helps us live at peace in the polis Again, if you're going to be a well-ordered society, you've got to have clear distinctions about who's responsible for what. Yeah. And I, I would include in this discussion, one of the things wise city fathers have to know is, you know, where does the church begin and where do I end? Yeah. A lot of men today, especially in the Protestant tradition, we're sort of like, you know, no one will tell me, uh, sola scriptura, I'm my own pope. No one ever throughout history or now can tell me what I need to confess. mm and that's actually foolish. Absolutely foolish. We have to submit to the authority. The fifth- Is he running for public office? <laughs> Sorry, the foolish Christian. Foolish Christian. Uh, let me vote for Throwing him or not. Back. Wait, wait. <laughs> yeah, I take the Turk. No, I did. <laughs> Give me the Turk. Yeah. So- what has happened to carry your fence metaphor? You know, a little bit further is 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 that some of these spheres have essentially taken down the fence and abandoned portions of their property, mm-hmm. and the land-hungry neighbor has decided to upkeep that portion of their their yes. property. And so here we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they upkeep it, but the trade-off is functional slavery. Yep. Right? So And they're going to do a really bad job. <laughs> yeah, and that's I mean that's what we t- we tend to see. I think one of the things that fathers have to do here on this is you could grow discouraged or the the one really opportunity we have with the federal government being so overgrown and so big and trying to interfere in everything is, as Dan said, they suck at it. <laughs> and so because they're terrible at it, we know that wherever we see authority being abdicated and somebody doing a really poor job, if we just start taking responsibility, the authority will flow to us. So if you see your neighborhood run down, well, start taking responsibility for your neighborhood. Mm. If you see that the families in your church are not practicing family worship, well, talk to the elders, talk to the pastor. If you're one of those men, like, do something about it. Mm. Start ordering the chaos, and, and a funny thing happens, the authority starts flowing to you. Yes. And as you do that, then, you know, you're starting businesses, you're being a leader in your church, the people of your community will look to you yes. as the one with authority to speak. It's so true, because, and, and the opposite happens, is that when authority's abdicated, 
when responsibility is abdicated, job of the state will come in and say, oh, no one's doing this. I guess I'm in charge of it. I voted and I'm in charge of it. That's how you get this endless bureaucratic swell yep. where uh, we, we say we're a government of elected officials. We're not. We're a government of a few elected officials in a vast unelected bureaucratic state that is, has essentially swollen to, to take every area of responsibility. But this is the key thing. Every area of responsibility that was ceded to them by the people, which to the Kuiper quote at the beginning of last episode, where we talked about the, the one who's been lulled to sleep. He's been lulled to sleep and uh, allowed for his responsibilities to be overtaken. He's complicit in the governmental swell. And so, yeah, I think absolutely. The first thing we have to establish here is that the authority of the government is not unlimited. And yet the only way to stop it from becoming unlimited, since it's such a slippery idol, is for individuals from the ground up to take responsibility for what is in their realm. Yeah, that's right. So if you're a father, you know, you're looking at your kids and you're saying, this is not the responsibility of the state. These children are my responsibility before God. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, it, it, it's an old body Bauckham, I think, but like what he said is, you know, the, the man who asks, am I allowed to educate my own children? Like that's a man who doesn't know his own authority. That's right. You don't know the authority that God gave you. You are responsible, Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 5 and 6. Yeah. You're responsible for your children. So when we talk about the limits of civil authority, and I would commend you a book like, this is an old book from the 1800s, James M. Wilson wrote an exposition of Romans 13, 1 through 7, called The Establishment and Limits of Civil Government, which, which is just a great primer. It gets you out of our current moment and current politics and gives you a very biblically grounded look at um, like the edges here, because it's clear, again, we don't want to make the, the error of anarchists that would say, well, civil, civil government's completely bad. It has no authority over me. I can do whatever I want. Get out of here, government. It's actually not true. God has given the government, civil magistrates, legitimate authorities in certain areas where you are to, quote, in, you know, believe what Paul says, quote, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. However, and this is the crux, when you understand Paul and Paul's understanding of sin and righteousness, and then you try to say that he is in verse 2 in Romans 13 telling us that whatever the government tells us to do, if we resist it, we'll incur judgment. No, that statement right there automatically limits Paul's statement to saying, when you resist the authority, doing what God said it is allowed to do. That's right. That's the key part that I think many Christians have been duped over today and bludgeoned over the head with things like Romans 13. But but obviously there's a line where when the civil magistrate commands you to sin or participate in sin, you're not just allowed, you are obligated by God to disobey. We have many examples of this in Scripture. And, and a lot of people agree with that, but then I think we should add another layer to that. Another principle that's often missed is that when the state begins to decree arbitrarily and, and, and try to take authority in areas where it does not have authority, maybe it's not commanding you to sin, but Christians still, I believe, have a responsibility to say, we won't participate in that. And the example, I think, I think it was Pastor Toby Sumter used during the the scam pandemic, how many uh, can I pile up? The fake scam plan pandemic. 
<laughs> when it when it happened, he said like, what if your uh, what if your local mayor, you know, issues a decree and says everybody before you go out of your house today, you have to jump on your right foot forty five times, and if you don't jump on your foot forty five right foot forty five times before you go out the door, you know what? I'm sorry, we're gonna have to arrest you. We're gonna fine you. You know, one month's wages. And we're gonna we're gonna issue you a citation. Well, it's like, is it a sin to jump up and down forty five times on your right foot? Yeah, because that was the silly <laughs> argument being made by a lot of pastors. Well, they're not commanding us to sin. It's not a sin to wear a mask in your every life. Tuesday. Everyone must eat bug meat. Yeah, is that a, is it a sin to eat bug meat? And it's like you have no you realize but it's the government going beyond their authority. You start to realize that the, the additional principle you need is not just when they're commanding you to sin do you resist, but you have legitimate grounds to resist the arbitrary exercise of authority. And the thing is, like you said at the beginning, Eric. Nobody will disagree with this when it comes to any other sphere. If a father started issuing arbitrary abusive commands to his children and saying, children, you're not allowed to do this. You have to jump up on, you know, started issuing those kinds of commands. Or to his wife. Or to his wife. I mean, they don't even want to allow a husband to prefer what his wife wears. Right. So, yeah. yeah, They've defanged his authority. That authority is almost nil. I I do want to make one other comment. This is the other ditch. Mm -hmm. But I think... There's a lot of like Christian libertarian camp here where I hear, you know, the taxation is theft. All yeah. taxation is theft. Romans 13 is also clear that paying taxes, verse 6, because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. Yeah, that's right. Now, I'm not saying there, I believe there certainly are in America unjust taxes. <laughs> yes. Obviously. But the principle of paying taxes is not in and of itself unjust. No. But you get a lot of the libertarian camp that's like, well, the government can't ever tell me what to do ever, anytime, about anything. Don't tread on me. No step on snake. Well, the problem is it's like, look, when you, if you were telling a woman who had been radically abused by her husband, Ephesians 5 says to submit to your husband, you're not telling her anything untrue. But you're, she has been set up by the sin of the authority to hear that as a curse. And that's what's happened in America today. That's what happens in statist governments. Is that if you went to communist China when people are eating the clay to try and survive, like in the cold open from the uh, part one of this episode or this, this topic, and said, Romans 13, you, 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 they would be probably pretty prone to despise your instruction. Yeah. So, so what a lot of pastors today have made the error in in the last couple of years, particularly, is in telling the battered wife to just submit to her ungodly husband in his battering, instead of saying, "It's totally true. Submission to the authorities is absolutely biblical, and we've got this every man a pope problem. We got this libertarianism problem, but we need to recognize that one of the places that comes from is from the the abusive husband of the state." Well, can you imagine, for for example, like if a husband was like forcing his wife to put a foreign sub- substance through needle into her body and she was saying no, Ugh. what would the same Christian leaders say? Well, I'm sorry, honey. You have, have to, to submit, submit to your husband. Yeah. I know we don't know what that substance is, but. The studies aren't out yet, but in 75 years. Got to do it. They've, Obey. The husband's promised he's going to study. Obey. It's yeah. for grandma. Obey. Come on. Do you love, do you love grandma? Do you love grandma? It's so wicked when you put, when you say it out loud. The utter emotional manipulation. Oh, it's heinous. It's vile. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, it's straight from Saul Linsky's, you know, Rules for Radicals. It says something about making your opponent to live up to their own rules. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's an obvious tactic. Yeah, it is. But for some reason, Christians are yeah. helpless against it. Well, guilty people who have ceded their responsibility out of laziness, out of sin, out of sloth, are easy to manipulate through guilt because they're racked with guilt. They know they're not doing their duties. Yeah, and we've had generations of pastors in the pietism stuff telling them that the godly thing is to not care or be involved. Right, because, oh, that's, stop caring about earthly things. Your treasure's in heaven. You guys, we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's all just jars of clay. Well, I mean. The body doesn't matter. Think about the gospel coalition. The gospel spreads better in bread lines when the economy has failed. And and by the way. So let's kill the economy. I'm so glad that you said that, Eric, because there is this thing that is true that gets used to manipulate people sinfully. And it's the statement that the, the, the tree of Christianity is watered by the blood of the martyrs. Absolutely true. That's absolutely been historically true. However, this idea that Christianity spreads most easily under persecution is or that, historically like, incorrect. The goal that we should always desire to be persecuted. Absolutely incorrect. We're, we're we actually. Um, it sounds like something Mao would have taught. Right. We've we've talked about Constantine in the cold opens in in these episodes. Did you just say Chad King? <laughs> that's I think that's what the translation. <laughs> By the way, Christianity went from I think it was. Under 10% for sure, and it might have been, I think it might have been under 2% on the chart in front of me from the beginning of the 4th century to something like 40 to 60% of the Roman Empire claiming Christ by 350. Do you know what happened between that time? Tell us, Brian, what happened? Constantine's Edict of Milan. This is why, if you read the Gospel Coalition, that was so bad for Christianity. Because <laughs> we need to be persecuted, Dan. Well, because, oh, and then oh, there was all this just cultural Christianity. People were just professing Christ because it was politically expedient. Yeah, absolutely. Some of those Christians were not truly regenerate Christians. However, this idea that Christianity spreads most rapidly, always under persecution, is a facile, historically inept lie. It's just not true. When you have godly city fathers, even city fathers like Constantine, there's a lot of debate about him personally, whatever. We, we can't see into his heart and know if he's regenerate. But here you have a guy demonstrably who is privileging the Christian faith, a nursing father, as Isaiah 49 would say, to the church in many ways. And what was the result? Christianity exploded. You know, what's interesting is I believe it was the very next emperor after Constantine. I, I can't recall. Tim Keller. <laughs> Just kidding. Is I'm, he running for president? I'm not. <laughs> is he a wise Turk or a foolish Christian? I'm yeah. Confused. Uh, what was I going to say? You're oh, saying yeah, the yeah, next yeah. emperor. The, the next emperor made Christianity the only legal religion in the Roman Empire. And then look into the future for the next, like, I don't know, 1,100, 1,200, 1,300 years. I'm just going to say that was a king move. Boy, king move. Or an emperor move. We're going to actually, you you know what? We're going to, I think it's fine. We we could give, obviously, any of these, the reason we're going so long in these episodes is because we could give a dissertation on any of these Topics, I think, because they're all so foundational. Brian could give a dissertation on any topic. Am oh. I right? <laughs> am I right? <laughs> am I right or am I left? Okay. But but let, let's keep rolling here. City Fathers know their authority is not an unlimited authority. It's a real one. Contra fever dream libertarianism. Contra the anarchists. Understanding that a lot of those positions arose out of the abuse of an abusive state. Mm-hmm. But we need to hold the line and say no. Civil authority is from God. It's a good thing when it's exercised. It's due on the grass when it's exercised in righteousness. 
Number seven, though, now we're going to we're going to move into we're starting to get into the realm of uh, kind of like if you're going to develop a wish list for where we're not trying to get a choice between a, a, a foolish Christian and a wise Turk. Now, let's say, what would a wise Christian look like? What would the ideal look like? And so number seven, part of that ideal would be that godly city fathers must love their place and their people mm. if they are to rule well. You won me. I'm starting to get excited now. And, and I know... It, Nacho Libre, actually. This is the... <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Everything you just said is my favorite thing to do every day. <laughs> I love to talk about place. And I know some people are going to be like, ah, they're about to go full blood and soil. Now it's just about to be, you know, they're probably going to be a bunch of transatlantic <laughs> slave trade apologists next. And Natural affections, gonna, not gospel yeah, affections. Yeah, like, but, but here's the thing, guys. Godly city fathers... This is almost so obvious. I don't. I don't know how it could be in dispute. If you're to rule a place well, if you're to be a good mayor or or, or a good governor of a polis, or you're going to be a good emperor, a good king, it's like, how are you going to love your neighbor if you don't love the place where your neighbor is established and planted and is growing? And if you don't love your people, if you don't say, if you know, if I am appointed mayor of Ogden for a day and I go, you know what, I'm pretty indifferent to these people. You'd be a terrible fire mayor. me. Get me out of here. I should I say, I love the people of Ogden. I thought this place wasn't our home. We were just a passing through. I thought we were Brian. just pilgrims. Just pilgrims. Pilgrims and Soldiers. wanderers. We're like Gandalf, Oloran, the, the gray wanderer, the gray pilgrim who through the long age. Never mind. Oh, I'm wow, sorry. this got really Godly city fathers. Dorky. Got nerdified. I'm going to. Ray can make, probably edit that out. I don't know. I don't know. Ray helped he's me not gonna, he's, he's not, not going to edit that out, no, is he? No. Dang it. No. And you don't thought you had it. my back, Ray. When you, when <laughs> you say like, that, Dan pays me. You know, Dan, yeah. Dan pays me, not I, you, Brian. So I do pay. Him. It, did, he, it is true. Dan is uh, in charge of that. So I'll give him a tip. So a couple of places where I really discovered love of place. Mm -hmm. Again, it's one of those areas where you get out of our insane moment and you start looking at what has human history been like throughout the ages. Mm -hmm. I was reading Wendell Berry, then I started reading Chris Wiley. Yeah. Which is like a gateway drug into the Aeneid and Homer. Absolutely. And then you find like through Western culture and, and then even, you know, extending into Christendom, there really is a deep love for place. Mm. Yes. And for belonging and for the land. And when you look mm. at even the promised land and what God has, you know, shown his people through the revelation of scripture, he promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of their fathers that would yeah. be an inheritance for generations. The biggest curse was belonging to no land. Think about Cain. Cain was cursed not simply by death, but he was forced to wander the earth with no people in place. That's a great point. You know, uh, Stephen Pressfield, Gates of Fire, a man without a city is no man at all. A man who belongs to no people, has no cause, has no kingdom, yeah. has no brotherhood. It's a fate worse than death. Wow. Oh, man. End the podcast. I'm getting, I'm getting worked up right now. Mm. I am feeling emotions welling in my soul akin to those that I imagine the writers of the Rohirrim felt as King Theoden gave his speech on the fields of the Pelennor. <sighs> what a great speech. No, but you're, you're right, Eric. Like, godly city fathers have to love their place and their people. And, and this is one of those sins that the scriptures talk about certain sins that, are, that make you worse than an unbeliever, which is interesting. Because the scriptures are not particularly kind to unbelievers. I mean, Paul says that they are, 
you know, walkers in darkness, passing their days in malice and envy, hating one another and being hated. We, and yeah. then he goes on to say, oh, and by the way, if you don't provide for your own the members of your own household, hold you've denied the faith and you are worse than an unbeliever. Why? Yeah, and he's talking about widows, so multi-generational care. Yes. You know, we have this whole concept that we owe our, our lineage nothing. And again, you can follow a recent episode on the Hard Men podcast, plug for that. Yeah, um, the Aeneid. Yeah, the Aeneid. The, the beautiful scene here is Aeneas fleeing Troy as it's burning. Mm-hmm. And he's carrying Iulus, his son, by the hand, and he's got his father on his back. And he said, this labor I will never tire of. Unbelievable. For I owe my son a kingdom. Unbelievable. And the painting that you shared with that episode. And this is what Chris Wiley rightly points out. That is pietas. That's right. Now, what's interesting, people say, well, that, you know, you're talking about Rome. Which is godly piety. Yes. Which which is a concept the Christians filled out even more deeply, but they began with a Roman concept and they filled it up to its flowering. Well, and here's the problem is we say, oh, well, that that's Rome. You know, that's pagan Rome. Mm. The problem is that that pietas is really what you find in the Old Testament with Abraham. That's right. right? He leaves a people in place. He sacrifices, gives all to lay the groundwork for his son who will build an empire in 400 or so years. Mm. And then you get Moses. And so it's like this idea that we, we do have this natural inclination to love what God has ordered, blood, land, place. Yeah. Now we're being shamed to believe that if we love those things— you know, you can think of the words bigot, racist, redneck, yeah, yeah. southerner. It, I mean, it's absolutely facile to me, absolutely facile to to make this kind of argument where you would say, because of the work of Christ and the unifying blood of Christ, there is neither barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is in all and in is all. Absolutely true. What Christ does is he breaks down the hostility between nations. He doesn't break down the he, actual cultural he, distinctions. He, he breaks down the hostility between the Greek and the Jew and the barbarian and the Scythian and the slave and the free. He breaks those things down under the blood of Christ. He washes the hostility away. But he doesn't homogenize. He doesn't wash away all distinctness. He doesn't wash away all uh, storge, we might say, which is a, a, a natural love. Paul even goes so far as to say that there is a kind of sin that is called a storge. It means a lack of natural affection. And, and that is that you don't even love what the pagans know to love. You, like, like the one who denied the faith by not taking care of his family, he is a storge. He has failed in his natural affection. Because even the natural affection should have led you to your duty. If we understand things like Augustine's proper ordering of loves, the ordo amore, if we understand that, then we understand that there is such thing as a surpassing love that ought to eclipse all things. Christ said, unless a man hate his father, he cannot love me. He cannot follow me. What does Christ mean? Does he mean the fifth commandment is bunk? Right. No, he means there is a surpassing affection which eclipses all others, and that is your affection for God himself. But here's the paradox. When you get that right, when you properly order your primal love, then you can properly love everything below. You can properly love your father. You can properly love your people. You can properly love your place. And you can look at somebody else doing that in a different people in place. And you can love that they love their people in place without hostility. Christendom Bible College offers a one-year certificate in the humanities for students who intend to pursue a degree or for students who prefer to begin their chosen occupations upon completion of our program. 
Older students who never attended college or who went to a college where the humanities were less robust will also find our program stimulating and suitable. Located steps from the Ohio River in the town of New Richmond, we're unaccredited in order to remain free to teach as our biblically-minded consciences demand. As servants of Christ, we won't wear the yoke of the woke. Instead, we stand on the shoulders of Christianity's giants, not to stew in nostalgia, but to see through the culture wars fall to the glorious days of a Christendom still to be built. Our exceptional faculty are committed to the historic, biblical foundations of our faith. Come be a part of Christendom Bible College. Visit us on the web at christendombiblecollege.org to learn more. While there, be sure to sign up for our email updates and receive your free three-chapter excerpt of our very own Dr. Frank J. Smith's new book, Race, Church, and Society. And so, for example, the, the continent of India... Is India a continent? No. I feel stupid. I went to public school. Asia. If you, if you go to the nation of India, let me put it that way, you will find a, a nation with similar de- Christian demographics to the state of Utah, which means that fewer than 2% of India worships Christ as Lord. Of course, the culture reflects that. However, imagine 1,000 years in the future or 10,000 years in the future, whenever the Lord appoints, when India bends the knee to Christ, when India is discipled and baptized and taught to obey all that Christ commanded, as we obviously believe will happen because we are post-mill and we love the Psalms and that kind of stuff. Imagine the kind of culture that will develop around the worship of the one true and living God in a place like India. It's going to look like the country. I mean, in the same way that good scotch is Scottish and it cannot otherwise be. You cannot make scotch without Scotland, without the climate and the peat and the ground, and the rain, and, 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 all, and the, the, the grains that grow in the field. It's the dirt, and the wind, and the sea tang. It's all of those things are in that cultural artifact that we call Scotch whiskey. Imagine Indian Christianity producing distinctly Indian Christian culture. And I will look at it, or I won't, because I won't be around. I'll look at it from the great cloud of witnesses, and I won't be Indian, <laughs> But I'll look on it and I'll say, glory to God for you and for all those Indian Christians who loved what it meant to be Indian and Christian and their culture, right? So when we say that city, if you're to rule a people and you don't even get this, this is the big E on the I chart, right? Like if you can't read this, then there's no way you're qualified to rule. Yeah, I mean, summarizing it, a a good king would love his people, and a bad king would despise his people. That's how obvious this so is, So obvious right? it is, It's right. so obvious. Yes. Cows also go moo. Yeah. I mean, that's where we're it, at, it's culturally. Like, it's like First Samuel 8. God promises as a judgment to a wicked people, a wicked king, who doesn't love them, but he tyrannizes them. Well, and that's what he's saying. He's like, look, if you hate God, you're, you're going to get a people who hate God. They're not going to know how to do anything, including rule, and so you're going to get a king who does not love his people in place. He hates them. He loves himself. He wants to use them and slaughter them and and have them serve him. Yeah, and I would even say, you know, we have, I'm sure, listeners who are not fully bought in on the post-mill. And we've said in the past, yeah, fine, great, join us in the work. Yeah, right. One of the things I think to to those brothers and sisters I would say is you have to still obey, you know, the, the general command from Jeremiah. That's right. That wherever God sends you, even if you're in exile, even if you believe that this is fundamentally exile, 
You are to seek the welfare of the place where you live. You plant gardens, meaning you plant right. your roots. You love your people. You mm. love your neighbors. You build your parks. You build your libraries. You care about the education of the local children in your place. You still have that moral responsibility from God's word. Yes. You have to do that. And that's why people say, like, I've, I've heard this before. Well, Brian, you're saying believe in local government and throw yourself into it. Why should we be running for school boards? We don't believe in public schools. Yeah, but you do believe in loving loving your neighbors who are enslaved to this tyranny. And so for you to be involved as salt and light, even in these wicked systems, that is a way that you bring the love of Christ, the love of people, the love of place to people that are downtrodden by the tyrannizing state. It's the same reason Paul could say, greet those brothers and sisters in, in Caesar's household. He wasn't like, oh, Christians, you know what? Uh, we believe in the law of God. Therefore, any system that is tainted by sin, just leave it. Go abandon it. That's not necessarily what he says. Yeah, I think that's... I, I've seen this a lot. Uh, we've talked about Dan and I have with sports. You know, originally sports in America were developed by Christians. You know, James Naismith in basketball, he develops uh, through the YMCA young, you know, for young Christian men, something to do in the wintertime. Those things have clearly... The NBA is not what James A. Naismith had envisioned. Right. Right? But does that mean that we just say... Foosball's the devil. <laughs> you and your fancy foosball friends. You and your foosball friends is the devil, Bobby. Like, do we say that and we just let the pagans have it? Yeah. No. I would say no. no. I You can't have NHL no, hockey. No, it, it, I want that. And this is a problem that you see so much. I think 8th century woodshipper, wood uh, Pastor Andrew Isker, was talking about this. Chad King. Chad King, absolute. Absolute Chad King. Shout out to yeah, our Chad King Shout out King to our Chad Kings. Andrew. Writing a great book. I think it's coming out through Canon Press sometime in the future on the Boniface option. So quite a bit of overlap in our vision for Christianity from him. He was talking about how one of the errors, and I think he would probably categorize and agree with us that this is an error in the category of cuckold conservatism, this Christless conservatism, is this instinct to always leave and do our own thing instead of infiltrating, conquering, and retaking. And he would know the misery of what it means to stay because he's a Vikings fan. Right. I am an ancestral Vikings fan because my my father's from Minnesota, Minnesota, until he was 18. You know, that was the land of his youth, pig farm family up there, 300 acres in Minnesota. And uh, so I, I inherited that and, and can agree. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be a part of a losing institution. Why do you think, though, like you're bringing up the point, it's a good one, that we abandon institutions. I think this is why among like conservative Christians it yeah. was so big to like the last twenty years church planning. Oh, that's a great point, Eric. But reclaiming old churches was like yeah, it's too we, hard. It's too hard. We don't want to do it. Dan, did you? It have is a too hard. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is in vogue right now, and and maybe you guys would have some insight as to the roots of this, but it's in vogue to despise your place, right? Mm, yeah. I, I'm sure we all growing up heard in high school like people saying. I can't wait to leave this place. Yeah. Right. I can't wait to get out of here. It seemed in vogue and maybe it's just a teenager thing. I I, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. uh, I think part of it is because there's no reason to stay. Like the reason I didn't stay in the Midwest is because there was nothing built there for me to actually, you know, to yeah. keep me there. There was no gravity as far as place was concerned. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you guys think about? About that, why is it in oh, vogue yeah, to despise your place instead of to actually love it? Because you know, we talked to Quinn Bible, Salt and Strings, butchery. He loves his place. He loves his place. Right. Yeah, yeah. He loves. He's he so excited. Him and uh, Anthony, I think Anthony. it was Anthony. Yep. Yeah, his hedge butcher. What's up, was, Anthony? He was so excited Yo, no. to, to tell us about how he lives across the street from his grandfather's yeah. place. It was like 
four generations back or whatever that they had yeah. owned this farm. And you got to think like they're they're able to go up to certain groves of trees and say like great great grandfather Pat Pat planted that and and this grandfather you know put in this fence line and this one put in this barn you know so why why you have people like that that to me seems like absolutely glorious and then the vogue thing to do which is to actually despise your place yeah. uh, so i think it's it's connected to this when we talk about patriot a patriot patria father is the root word a patriot is one who loves the fatherland so our disdain for our fathers specifically the fathers who built america our violation of the fifth commandment is the reason why if we hate our fathers we're going to hate the father's land mm. we're going to hate what they built so i think it's so much deeper than just like hating illinois or hating you know wisconsin or hating your small town it's it's actually hating your father and what his world made now, the problem today is there are some things that we should repent of and disdain. We should disdain the boomer world. That would be a good example. But I think there's also a fundamental reality. Wendell Berry has an essay on the, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And he says the Iliad and the Odyssey is the fundamental struggle of every man in all history. The Iliad is every young man's journey to go out, to win war, to fight, and to uh, you know have these feats of battle and then the Odyssey is the second part of a man's life, which is coming home to reclaim his homeland, mm. to find his place and his people, to reclaim, really, as Odysseus must do, his household. I think the problem, though, and Wendell Berry points this out, the problem today is because we've had this hatred of the fatherland, we just stopped coming home. Mm. Like, so in the old days, this was, you know, 1950s even, this was very common. Like, the son would go to the big city and, and a lot of movies and, and novels had this this story arc. They would go to the big city, and they'd be like, wow, this isn't all it's cracked up to be. And then what would they do? They would come home, and they would settle in their rural town, and they would regain the love for their fathers, right, and for their father's land. Well, the, the point is, we stopped coming home. Ugh. And it, it's crazy. Aaron Wren points this out. We're allowed to love our city. You know, Tim Keller was all about love your city. Love your city, hate your nation. I don't know why, but that's what's being pushed. Eric, that's really interesting. One of the one of the things that I personally have been struggling with recently, I've been in Utah, I've been away from Wisconsin uh, for a while, 2012 probably. Mm -hmm. So about 10 years now. And all of my family has transplanted to Utah. And and so this is now my home. Like I've said, it burned the boats and everything like that. Yeah. But you guys watch like uh, Charlie Barron's and like this – Oh, it's yeah. a comedian who's from Wisconsin Midwest. and he makes fun of Wisconsin and everybody watches it and laughs. And I think it's funny, but when I watch it, there's something else happening because it's a love of home. And mm. it, it took me leaving it to realize what I actually had mm. in, in the uniqueness of the culture. And I know I've talked in after hours about like Norwegian and Swedish jokes and my dogs, uh, Mud ducks, yeah, about uh, the the affinity for uh, Minnesotans and Illinoisans, yeah, <laughs> and uh, my disdain, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, anyway, so uh, the point is that I feel that pull, I feel that pull back home, and so much of our culture, I think, is displaced, mm. has been displaced. I mean, our church, yeah. our church, we're in Utah, right? Uh, Brian said less than two percent evangelical Christian. And our church is full of non-natives to Utah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say... I, I came here from England. You came from Wisconsin. 
Eric, you came from Colorado and elsewhere. Another elder is from California. Another elder is from Florida. Florida. Well, I think uh, a, a huge part of this actually is you've got to look at what's going on with corporate America, with the job markets. So right now in America, and, and I'm sure data has changed a little bit since COVID. Actually, probably quite a bit. But mid-COVID, the data that we had was that the average American employee stays at a job for under three years. It was like 17 months or 21 months. It was crazy. So, and I look back at my career and I think, okay, well, every time you wanted to advance, every time you want to get a different job, it meant a move. So literally in 17 years of being married, we've lived in Colorado three different times. We've lived in Kentucky. We lived in Illinois. We lived in Maryland. And we've been in a couple other places as well. Indiana. Mm. So when you look at that, it's like, well, you actually wouldn't develop a love for place. No. What ended up happening along the course, we were like, oh, yeah, we really love the West. We miss that. The problem was, Dan, that like you come back and it's like we didn't really have family, not much family there. Right. Didn't have a church. Again, it's my the, job wasn't there. So there's like, no gravity. Right? Yeah. There's no root system to actually pull you in and hold you. I think the other thing that we've got to be pl- playing for right now is like I, you know, I'm a transplant fairly recent. I don't love this place. I don't even know this place. You got to realize that it's going to take a lifetime for us to love it. And then our hope really, and what we're setting up for is that our sons will like your sons, Dan, will have never known anything pretty much but Utah. Mm, And so for them, the way you feel about Wisconsin, they'll feel about here. Yeah. And that's, that's That's what we have to be aiming at. I keep like shoving down a lot of those longings. For home, even to the point where I've been considering going back for deer season and to go fishing and to go grouse hunting in northern Wisconsin, it is amazing. Any, anyway, like not doing those things because I don't want to have to fight constantly with different affections. Mm. And knowing that, Eric, my boys will have known nothing different and that we are actually building things yeah. that will cause them to stay, hopefully, to keep our kids. There was a Grace Agenda conference a few years ago on that. And it's not just keeping your kids in the faith, because, yes, absolutely. Of course. But it's also keeping your kids, like, here, yeah, rooted in the community, because it becomes a lot, I imagine, because I haven't experienced it, it becomes a very rich place. When you can go into a church and say, hey, there's that guy's grandfather, you know, here's him, here's, you know, his grandchildren, there's where they built. This is their part of town. This is their businesses. Yeah. yeah. It, and you have all these like marriages that have happened with different families in the community that have tied everybody together. Yeah. So you create gravity through institutions like a school, yeah. wanting your kids to have, you know, my kids will have gone through uh, St. Brendan's Classical Christian Academy, getting an amazing education, uh, you know, f- formating, uh, forming a uh, robust Christian worldview and things like that. And I'm hoping that they're going to want their kids to want to have the same experience, to have the same education, the same traditions and things like that. It, it becomes quite honestly difficult to leave at that point. And I want to make it as difficult for my kids to leave as possible because of their affections, not because of manipulation. We can be so Gnostic with our understanding of affections in the gospel where we, where we over spiritualize and we fail to recognize that part of the goodness of our created nature is its embodied spiritualism, embodied spirituality in a place with restrictions. We're not, you know, we exist in a, in a place. We have extension in space. We come God to gave love us certain parents, dirt and earth. And then you come to promises and pictures in the prophets like that the deserts will flower. 
Well, even even what is the overarching theme of Proverbs? What is the motivation for Solomon to write the Proverbs? It's son, give me your heart. Yeah, he wants their heart. And so, I mean, when you look at the the flowering of the deserts, it's like you might be in a place that's not, you know, if I could choose anywhere in the world to live, just in my instincts and what I've come to love in a place, I would want to live in like that high pine country. I'd want to- French- Canada. In British Columbia, yeah. like I'd <laughs> want to live go in to Canada. I'd want to live close to the the the, the temperate the Swiss Alps, the no, temperate just... rainforests of the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> I think are beautiful. I love that area. I love that weather. You know. However, I live in a desert. I live in a high desert. That's that's what Utah is. So, one of the things that I that I by the way, one of the most beautiful places on earth. It really is. I mean, <laughs> Utah's amazing. amazing, and I'm coming to love it. I've been here since 1999. And I don't feel a rootedness in place at all. Like, it's just, I still don't feel that about Utah. But one of the things that I look forward to, like you guys are talking about, is that because the gospel can make, because Christ's work in people can make people who go out and take dominion and make gardens in deserts and desert wastelands and uninhabited places, I really believe that this place, that Ogden, Utah, that Utah can become one of the jewels on Christ's crown and that it can become the kind of place because of Christians in the name of Jesus taking dominion here. I believe that it can become a place where my children would say, I don't want to live anywhere else. I wouldn't want to go anywhere else. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about uh, my wife's, so this would be her great grandpa uh, who's no longer living. They came to America from Italy and they settled a valley which was a poor valley. They were mountain ranchers. They built in, they dug in, they've been there for, oh geez, 80 years. Wow. And they settled it. They started an earth moving company. They run businesses. They're prominent in the area. And that area is now Aspen, Colorado. Mm. And they own a bunch of land and they're still there, et cetera, present. But now it's like, you can't say the family name and people, everybody knows who that is. Yeah. Because they've been there longer than anyone, and they, and they poured into a place. But it's interesting because uh, my father-in-law told me, he said grandma, even his grandma, refused to speak Italian, which is actually uh, patois, which is like a northern Italy, French, French dialect. Mm. Um, but it's interesting because they said they refused to speak it because they, they understood this principle of we're going to a new place. We're not going to be nostalgic about home. This is our home. Interesting, and so and they they understood the cost of that too. They yeah, you could tell they love their culture, but it's like we have to start something new. I mean, Italian with French mixed in sounds like a real improvement on on Italian. <laughs> imagine the food. <laughs> Can you imagine the food? The food is actually amazing. So they Bro. were not a, a tomato red sauce. Uh huh. It's cream. It, uh, pesto. Oh, because they're in the mountains, so not a lot of tomato from Tuscany or anything like that. It's northern, so they're mountain. Wow, pine nuts. Yeah, they're a, they're a mountain people. One of the you things, can harvest pine nuts in Utah, by the and way. And you know what? You can also har- harvest some serious juniper. That's right. I did. We're I making did, some juniper hey, honey. As right a now. side note, I harvested some pine nuts in uh, during a deer hunt, mm. and uh, sticky mess. Big mistake, yeah, especially yeah. when you don't have many gloves. Right. But yeah, continue. Yeah. So one of the things I want to encourage people. This has kind of been our journey. Um, Aeneas was trying to settle a land into people, but he was told by the gods that look, you'll have years of toil plowing the seas, plowing the waves of the sea before you can get there. Mm. And so I think I was there a lot of times. Like I could get discouraged. Like I haven't found my polis. I haven't found my people, my place. Um, but you you have to keep fighting for it and working. Uh, I know a lot of guys, you hear this a lot on Twitter. 
I went to a church, it was bad. I went to another church, it was bad. I gave up. I'm just going to stay here, and I have no people in place. One of the promises that I've held on to that God makes to his people, both in Kings, I think the end of 1 Kings, and then Isaiah 37, he says, "...and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall, again, take root downward and bear fruit upward." You are not going to be a fruitful people. You cannot be everything that we've we've been pushing for in Christendom. You will never be Christendom 2.0 if you do not find a place and a people and put roots down and become an oak. Oh, you so good. Cannot do it with vagrancy. You can't. So I would just encourage people. Just because on the first try, you know, you go to Carthage and that's not your place, and you go to Ethiopia and that's not your place. Like you keep moving forward. Yeah. Believing in the promise, you'll find a people in a place. In Ogden, Utah. God will plug you in. Yeah, there really is nothing sweeter than being in a community where everybody's pulling the same direction. Mm. Yeah. Man. And, and, and it doesn't rare, take long. There are rare communities to find. So, And that's the point. You've got to yeah. put in an intense amount of effort. Look, the whole point, of, I think one of the huge points of the Aeneid is it takes a hero to start a people. Yeah. It takes heroic style effort, godlike effort blessed by the gods and also Aeneas is godlike, it takes that kind of effort to rebuild Christendom. Mm. Right? So it's it's not for the faint of heart. It's not right. the easy work. Like if you're saying, well, what's the thing I could do that's like bureaucratic and corporate and easy and you just fall into it and it works? Christendom is not that thing. <laughs> that's right. I'm, my mind is blown, guys. I've just, I've, I didn't know that we were, that there were such riches to be mined under that point, but we've, we've waxed so eloquent that it's time to wrap this episode up. So, gentlemen, you know, as much as I hate to say it, there's going to be a part three. And when I say I hate to say it, I mean I love to say it because I love words and talking about important stuff. I'm just going to say at this rate, there's probably going to be a part four. There's going to be at least a part and three. And then a follow-up. Yeah, and then a follow-up. <laughs> because, look, a lot of and, – and let me defend that for a moment before we wrap this episode up because I do believe that one of the reasons this this is good and meat, this is meat and right for this to be the case when we come to this topic, is that in a lot of ways when we talk about the polis, when we talk about the city fathers, we're talking about a rightly ordered people. Mm. And that is the project of Christendom. The project of Christendom is not an ecclesiocracy. It's not an ecclesiocracy in which, in like the papal era, where the church is the, is the authority, period, and everything else is subsumed in the church. God has made a world where there's the family, there's the church, there's the the city fathers and the civil magistrate and the, and the place, and those are all legitimate spheres, legitimate authority that God has instructed. Neither subsumes the other entirely, though they have much overlap. But when we start talking about things like a Christian political theology, we're really talking about what it means and looks like to be a people in a place mm-hmm. who love the Lord and build there. So it would be reasonable for us to spend some more time and and not rush through this topic, which we won't do. Uh, But we do want to thank you for listening to this episode of the King's Hall and point you to two of our sponsors for this episode. Of course, Reformation Heritage Books, heritagebooks.org. They have a lot of good resourcement for the recovery of many of the doctrines that we're describing. And again, these are going to start in the home. Pick up a family worship Bible guide if you haven't already. That's a link in the description of this episode. And men, you can begin to take responsibility right there at home and and not let that authority slip and let the state or let somebody else step in or even the pastor step in and say, I guess I have to pick up the slack where dad left off. We'd want to point you as well to 
Another sponsor for this episode, Christendom Bible College, christendombiblecollege.org. Again, there's there are links in the show notes there where you can check it out. This is higher education that's aimed at being distinctly biblical, historical, taking a Christian principle approach to higher education, aiming to restore America's character by training students in the foundations and principles of our Christian civilization. So you heard a lot of words in that little uh, statement of, of intent there that probably rings in harmony with many of the of the aims of this season and of the King's Hall and of the three of us here in our church as well. Uh, so we'd, we'd commend them to you, ChristendomBibleCollege.org, if you're looking for some godly higher education there. But thanks again for listening. Uh, make sure you check out our Patreon page. Again, there's a link in the description where we do another. We're going to hit pause on that. We're going to hit stop on this recording. We're going to hit record again, and we're going to do our after-hours show that we produce with every main episode where we, you know, things come out. I mean, it's like a pub. It's like a pub environment at the King's Hall. We play. It's, I can't even describe it. It's Words too much fail. fun. It's too much fun. We have so much fun, and uh, we'd love to invite you into that. All of our patrons gain access to uh, our after hours, not just the one that we're going to record today, but also our whole back catalog. I think we've got 16 or 17 episodes of after hours uh, here as we record on the 23rd of June in the year of our Lord 2022. So jump on Patreon if you haven't already, but remember, gentle kings and queens, Festin Alente, make haste slowly. This is a long project, and the Lord is not impatient. He looks down the ages and he fights the long victory through those ages, generation by generation. See you next time.